Welcome to the Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife Podcast Archive, where you have access to all the amazing insights Dr. Finlayson Fife has shared through hundreds of interviews. I'm Mackenzie, Dr. Finlayson Fife's assistant, and we are so glad that you're here. Okay. Hi, Jennifer. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Jennifer is a marriage and sexuality coach and therapist, and she offers a bunch of really awesome online courses as well as workshops um, about the topics that she discusses in her podcasts and, and with her clients. And I happen to know that you have a few spots left open in your mm-hmm. workshops coming up in August mm-hmm. and September. Do you want to tell us a little bit about those? Sure. Yeah. It's the Art of Desire Retreat. And this is um, a three-day immersion in the concepts and materials that are a part of my women's self and sexuality development course. And so um, it's a group of about 60 women and it's just a remarkable experience. It's probably my very favorite thing to do Mm -hmm. because we're able to kind of take a deep dive in each of these life-changing concepts. And, you know, for those who've taken the course or you hear me talk on the podcast that they're kind of like an entirely different way to think. And the thing I love about the retreat is that it gives you more time to kind of metabolize and make sense of some of these ideas. I have more video clips. There's more discussion. There's also time to interact with other women around meals and in the evenings. Um, And so anyway, it's just a, it's a three-day event that has gourmet food and exercise and meditation and all the instruction, of course, a movie night. And it's great. It's, and you really do see this kind of transformation from the first day in the morning to the last day at the end. Mm. So it's really fun. We had such a long wait list that we ended up doing two August and September. And in each of those, uh, we have had a few openings. So hopefully they'll still be there when this podcast gets released, (laughs) but, uh, cause they are filling up, but, but there are a few there. Good, Mm -hmm. good. Um, and they're both in Oregon, right? That's right. Just outside of Portland. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Awesome. I had the chance, uh, let's see, I think it was two years ago now, almost to attend a workshop and it Uh sounds amazing to have that extra day and -hmm. just to be fully immersed in it. I mean, just the workshop itself was completely transformative, but I did go home at night and still have my baby and go back to real life. Yeah. And so it would be nice to just be right. completely immersed in it and have even more time to digest everything that you talk about because it's a complete um, paradigm shift, paradigm a complete shift. change of thinking. That's exactly. right. Exactly. Uh-huh. Anyway, so definitely recommend that. Hopefully there will be a few spots open still yeah. when we get this out. Yeah. Um, Okay, I'm going to go ahead and jump into what we're going to talk about today. And I'm just going to set up the conversation a little bit by sharing. Jennifer and I are both members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I love the church. I am Mm -hmm. all in. I care about it so much. And I love what it provides me and um, now my young family and like the belonging that we have there Mm -hmm. and And at the same time, I also have questions and Mm -hmm. things that kind of give me pause. And these are questions that have been in my heart for a lot of years now. And I've wanted, I have talked to a lot of people about it, but as far as a conversation that I wanted to air, I felt like it was really important to have a very thoughtful 
honest and earnest conversation. And I couldn't think of anyone better to have it with. So I'm really grateful for you for coming back on the podcast to discuss feminism and patriarchy and and some of these issues that um, I've seen in the church. So thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Let's start with kind of your background. What did you believe about men and women as you grew up? Um, Mm. Kind of what you saw as you were growing up? Well, I believed that women really mattered. And I believed that we were fundamental to the operating of the family and the church and that God loved me and all women. Mm. And I believe that men mattered a little bit more. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) And so I remember thinking things as a kid, like God must really love our family because there's five, I have five brothers. (laughs) Now, those are kind of horrifying thoughts for me to think about now when I think back yeah, to my younger self. Yeah, but at the time, self. it probably, how, it wasn't that strange. <laughs> no, that's absolutely yeah. how I made sense of it, that God was male, Christ was male, and in the LDS faith that we have priesthood and that regular males in the church, age 12 and up, that are you know worthy or compliant with the standards of the church are able or eligible to have that priesthood authority, some authority, some godly authority. Mm-hmm. So it's right in one's home. It's not like somebody who went to the seminary and studied for 20 years or whatever now has this vested authority. It's it's right in marriages. It's right in families. And so for my little mind, that's mm-hmm. how I made sense of it. And it wasn't that I felt devalued, you know, But uh, there was no abuse in my family. Uh, But it was definitely a sense of God, men, women, children. Mm. The second thing was just learning to my horror at age 12 about polygamy. Mm. I learned about it from a friend at school who wasn't LDS. She just was aware of it. And she told me about it. And I said, no, you're absolutely wrong. There's no way. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, you know, then I went home. I asked my mom about it and, you know, even had Sunday school teachers who taught it as the higher order of heaven, the higher right. form of marriage. And that for me was really distressing actually about how to make sense of what women were in God's eyes. Because for me, the message was that women mattered, but well, how to say it, that, that one woman wasn't enough for one man. Mm. And that women were there more as supports for the more important work of men. Mm-hmm. And that was an idea that for me was frightening enough that getting married scared me because I felt like if I were a good woman, I would give away my autonomy to get married. Mm. So that is that I would, and these were ideas that were certainly taught when I was growing up, I think more than they are now yeah. in the church. Yeah. But the idea that you would, defer, that you would follow him, you take on his name, you know, you fold into his life and support his more important action. And that that kind of sacrifice was noble and good. And while I wanted to get married, I wanted to have a family that felt, you know, I don't think I had quite the language for it, but it felt dangerous to me. It felt like I was losing something I didn't want to lose. So while I wanted to be married and be a mother and have a family, I didn't want to fold into a man's world. And so I resisted getting married for a long time, almost unconsciously. I just put my head down and 
didn't look at men for yeah. a decade. <laughs> That's not happening. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I remember learning about polygamy too and just being so confused. And I honestly think it's something that I just kind of was like, I'm not even going to put that on the back burner. I'm just going to like take that off the stove. Like I don't even mm-hmm. want to, I can't mm-hmm. think about it. I don't know how to make sense right. of it. And I, I didn't like what it, if I did try and figure it out, I didn't like what was coming up for me. So right. yeah, it's just kind of a tough thing to think about. You, you recently did a podcast with uh, Carol, what's her last name? Carolyn, Carolyn Pearson. Pearson. And uh, yeah. Anyway, listening to that was like, oh, I don't know. It just felt like, okay, I can think about this and I can gave it some breathing room for me a little bit. So I'll link that episode in the show notes too, because that was kind of a helpful one to think through some of those concepts. Yeah. And Carolyn wrote this um, book, The Ghost of Mm -hmm. Eternal Polygamy, that I think is a very valuable uh, step into understanding how this idea really impacts LDS women today and now. So it's a very valuable book. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. I haven't read that yet, but I want to. Um, Okay. So, I feel like you touched on it a little bit, but where did you first begin to notice patriarchy and kind of become interested in feminism or women's studies? Well, you know, it's interesting because I remember as a pretty young child, there was the Equal Rights Amendment that was up uh, Mm -hmm. for consideration. And there was kind of an awareness in my family of Sonia Johnson and uh, like Latter-day Saints Latter-day Saint women who were standing up in um, saying that we didn't need the ER Equal Rights Amendment ratified. And then, of course, other vocal Mormon women who were in favor of it. And I just remember that the idea of feminism was negative Mm, in my family, like that the way my parents thought about it was this was a threat to goodness. These were women who were going off the rails, chaining themselves up to fences and things like that in protest. So like I didn't have any favorable idea about feminism at that time. It's an interesting question. Like when did, the thing is I had a lot of questions. I I mean, I think at the time I, I hadn't, I was too young to have any articulated Mm. view of how things should be or any thoughtfulness around it. More of what was just my lived experience. But I think when I was an adolescent, I had some anxiety about, you know, as I was saying, connecting to a boy, connect, having a boyfriend. It just felt like you had less power. So I was, I was afraid I would lose something dear to me if I was connected to a boy. So that was a, an idea in my mind. And I think it's when I went to Brigham Young University as a freshman, and I was trying to sort out these some questions that were in my faith that I was just couldn't kind of sort out, which had a lot to do with my sense of self, my sense of self as a woman. And so I don't think I had the word feminism for it yet, but I think I was really grappling with those questions a lot at that time. And then when I um, came back from my LDS mission, I think I felt much more solid in my sense of self and a little more trust in my ability to think and discern and make decisions for myself. And it happened to be, I tra- you know, I changed my major from design to psychology, but also at BYU, the, a women's studies minor was just starting that semester. And so I signed up to be a women's studies minor as well. And so that allowed me to kind of really 
step in and really start grappling with these questions in women's history and anthropological uh, perspectives and things like that. And um, it was, that was a very valuable um, focus for me over the next three years. That's Mm -hmm. so cool. Sounds like an amazing opportunity. Can you talk a little bit about what Mm -hmm. you learned or some things that really impacted you through your women's studies at that time? I'm sure it's so many things, but anything that stands out. There's so much. (laughs) A couple things, maybe that stand, maybe three things that stand out to me, just sort of when I just think back in a, in a, and sort of the impressions there. One is how helpful it was for me just to interact with the thoughtful professors themselves, (laughs) because these were thoughtful women who'd grappled with these questions, who most of whom were LDS and had some understanding of the faith tradition and sort of its implications. And so just being in thoughtful conversation was highly valuable, whether or not I, as you know, ascribe to their point of view per se, but it was like being able to wrestle and grapple with these questions in an open way was really, really helpful. I remember a second experience where I was in a women's sociology class and the professor found some hymns that I think were from the early church that were worshipful of mother in heaven. And we just sang them in class. And I remember just like being brought to tears. Like it was like, I, (laughs) it was so impactful for me to reconnect to this lost mother figure and how much I needed her. And um, I think that for me was just far more powerful than I had expected and really told me what I had been longing for was this divine feminine. And I think a third experience that was really helpful for me is I studied abroad in Israel uh, for a semester. And because the women's studies minor was quite flexible, I asked if I could take um, women in Islam course when I was there to, to fulfill the requirements. And so the professor was um, a Palestinian woman and incredibly intelligent woman. Like her class was like the hardest <laughs> class I'd ever taken. I, I'm like, oh my gosh, you're killing me. But but I did have some private conversations with her because I knew that she really fully understood, you know, her parents tried to get her to buy into an arranged marriage. She rebelled and ran away and ended up marrying the guy she was married to, who was also a professor there. But, um, but the, she really helped me understand, and I think this actually was a lot in my dissertation, was that women kind of never get simply oppressed. That is that women are these vibrant, capable, smart creatures as much as men are, and they find ways to have power and effectiveness in their life. Now, that is not to say that that makes patriarchy a good system or that it doesn't have its costs to women and to men and children, but that that it's not just a simple story of oppression and submission, that there's a lot of ways like that. And again, I'm not making these things healthy, but more a function of seeing people within systems and how they try to find forms of power or control in their lives in sometimes very creative ways. So one of the things that was sort of paradoxical is on the one hand, in Islam, you know, men have all the kind of overt power, they own property, they have, you know, ability to vote, they are in this hierarchical relationship. But in another sense, women 
have control over their children and their sons and so and, and over their daughters-in-law <laughs> and ultimately women often become the most powerful in the family in this paradoxical sense and so that was also helpful for me because i think in my dissertation research which was on lds women and sexual agency it was also seeing the way that women would in these narratives relate to sexuality sometimes in healthy ways and clearly making decisions for themselves that allowed them to be stronger and to have more of an equal position in the marriage. But also you see the ways that, you know, women are not idiots. They're finding ways to have more covert power to get their needs met. And often this is working badly for everybody, meaning in these sort of dependent systems. Yeah. But it still um, gets you out of the picture that women are just helpless um, and that we aren't sort of capable and wise in sorting out our ways, our lives as best we yeah. can. Man, so interesting. And so many good things there. I mean, just listening to you talk, I'm like, that is so cool to have that place and that space to have those open conversations like you were talking about. That's, yeah. I mean, just having this conversation with you, it like, it's hard to describe how it's making me feel, but I just, I feel like there's roots that are so deep. These questions, these roots are just so mm -hmm. deep and it, feels so good to be able to just talk about it. <laughs> I don't know. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that must have exactly. been wonderful. And then those hymns, that sounds amazing. Yeah, Do you know where those are or like, can they be found or was it just in that class? That's such a good question. I would have to go dig mm. out some of my <laughs> boxes to see if I can find, find that in my notes. Um, I don't think that professor's there anymore. Mm -hmm. I think she was an assistant professor. That just sounds um, so interesting to me. And I, when I, yeah. so there's the hymn, oh, what's the name of it? Now I'm totally blanking, but it says in the heaven. Yes. Oh, that's my the father. One. That one. Mm -hmm. Oh, my father. Yeah. Yes. In uh -huh. the heavens are parents single. No, the thought makes reason stare. That's the first. Yes. That's, that's right. the first Mentioned. mention I ever heard of heavenly mother. And I just like mm -hmm. stopped yes. me in my tracks and I think about it all the time. So to have more yeah. songs, I don't know, that'd be really interesting to see what those hymns in the early church said, because <clears throat> through what I've found and the, what I've seen, it sounds like they talked about her more than, than we do now. So, yeah, there is a bunch of, one yeah. thing just to say, and I, I don't know if I can find it, but there's a bunch of research that some BYU professors did on mother in heaven and on I all the just heard about to that. her. It's really I remarkable. Heard it's like a 28 page. Um, yeah, I haven't had the chance to read that yeah, yet. It's called yes. A Mother There. I just found it right here. A survey of historical teachings oh, about mother I and heaven. I can't wait to look at that. And so, yeah, it's it's really um, awesome. It's good. I'll have to check that out. Um, and then mm -hmm. I love that how you talked about how women are creative and we're not dumb. <laughs> Even if we are oppressed, yes. we will find a way to yeah get what we need. Can we shift a little bit and talk about patriarchy in the church and what that looks like and maybe why it's there? Well, let's start with what it looks like. I mean, I think it's a male-focused notion of our ideals. Mm -hmm. So we have God, who we're all striving to be, is yeah. like, is anthropomorphized, but right. as a male. Right. And even the Holy Ghost, who doesn't have a body, we still manage male. to make him a male yes. non-body. Yes. 
Yes. And we say we're all created. <laughs> like, can in, we get yeah. one thing? <laughs> we're all created in his image. It's like, but we're not all male. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. And I hadn't really right. thought about that. Exactly. So at a very young age, you're identifying yes. with maleness yes. as a female. And so, and then authority is male. So the people passing the sacrament, the bishop, the father who's giving the blessing, male, 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 male. So it's all a kind of male authority reference. And, you know, patriarchy is any kind of system or organization or society in which men are the dominant definers of what is real and what is true. There is probably an argument to be made that patriarchy has served certain societies that did better with maybe the brute strength of men, you know, or another way of saying it, that you could make perhaps that argument. I'm not sure if it's true, but another way of saying it is if you are dependent more upon the masculine capacities to survive, they're going to have more power in the conversation, right? So if you need someone who can fight off the, the, you know, the threats to your community or that can go and track down the, the lion and bring it back and women are less able to provide in that sense, then it's going to set up a system in which those who have more ability to provide economically or for safety are probably going to get more favored. I'm not an anthropologist, so I don't, I can't say like, I, I, I get all the ins and outs of this idea, but I think there's probably good reasons for why societies have evolved in this way. Um, one of the reasons why I think it's been challenged more lately is because economically we're not as dependent on masculine attributes as we once were. And so I think that starts to change the way we value or think about male and female. So anyway, but the church has been set up more upon that assumption of maleness as superior. And certainly that's in a lot of scriptural text as well. Why it's that way, I think that's my best answer as to why but I don't know that I think that it's that way because it must be that way. And I think in our faith, we have the seeds for a more expansive notion of God. Like Elohim is God, plural, but we don't talk about it as mother and father. The, the good news is I think we have within our theology the ability to evolve into something much truer, much stronger. You can't achieve Zion can achieve happiness in marriage when you have a hierarchy between men and women. My practice is all about working with the consequences of that inclination within humans to create hierarchies. And they don't always go in the man on top, woman on top. Some women are creative enough that they get on top and, <laughs> you know, okay. All right. And so it can go the other way for sure. But hierarchy within humanity creates suffering. What I mean is not hierarchy of skills or capacity, right? It makes sense that somebody with the highest skill is going to have the most impact because that's going to make society better. I'm talking about sort of basic selfhood, basic character, basic, that there, are you relating to others as same as, as all alike unto God, as equals in personality, even though you have different gifts and capacities. That's essential to any Zion, concept of Zion. That's essential to any capacity to have an intimate, open-hearted friendship in marriage. Now, you can get utility out of hierarchical relationships even in marriage, but they aren't intimate. 
And so you can't put the two together, even though we often imagine or try to. You must love me sexually because you're my wife and I'm your provider. Well, you might get sex, but you're not going to get an open hearted woman who wants to be close to you because she's in submission to you. Yeah. It's interesting that that idea of hierarchy, it's so hard to get away from and to to really embrace Mm -hmm. that same as principle. I feel like we do it in all of our relationships. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. No, we absolutely do. And I think if you do it in any relationship, it infects all your relationships. Now, that doesn't mean any concept of hierarchy is always the same. That is, some people are deeply linked into kind of vertical relationships. And some of us just do it a little bit as we're evolving and growing. But any kind of I'm above, if you're putting yourself above or below, you infect all your relationships. And it's very hard to be at peace when you do that. I also really like that you said I you see that this is the way the church is and you can see reasons mm-hmm. for why it is that way not to say that mm-hmm. that's how it's supposed to be that's the difference and I right. I think that's a really hard part of the conversation to have with a certain people it's like you say something like that mm-hmm. like maybe it's not how it's supposed to be maybe there's still time to evolve mm-hmm. and there's this like instant shut down of like, oh, mm-hmm. that's being um, faithless. That's not mm-hmm. believing in our leaders. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. And it can just keep yeah. you from just being able to have the conversation in the first place. Absolutely. I know that experience <laughs> well. <laughs> um, I, you know, because when I was younger and I was trying to have some of these conversations, they often did yeah. not go well. But, you know, um, I personally think while it's very human to want the idea that we've gotten everything right and there's no need to be having any more conversations and that anyone that thinks otherwise is faithless is a faithless Mm. position it is a fear-based position it's not congruent with our theology that embraces truth wherever we find it that is saying there's yet much truth to be revealed that we must stay open that we can only receive as much as we're grown up enough to handle which apparently right. isn't that much yet. Don't <laughs> we only like, have a third of the book of Mormon? <laughs> even like, yeah, come on. We don't even right. have half. <laughs> exactly. Of right. one book. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, and so this rigidity, and this is what Christ was very critical of as well, is that this kind of rigidity and narcissistic reinforcement that we want, that I've got all the answers and I'm now in a position to judge you, is fear-based, it's inherently not faithful, it's sacrilegious, or it's, you know, it's hypocritical. So it's, it's hard to stay open and to keep growing. I see this all the time in myself. I see it in relationships. I see it in communities. But if we don't, we limit, we damn ourselves. We limit what we can become. And we need to keep evolving and growing if we're going to allow our spirituality to truly be a source of joy and direction. And if we try to limit it out of fear, it's yeah. very costly. That sounds so beautiful and so wonderful and like w- exactly what I want. And yet it is scary because it can be scary mm-hmm. to ask questions and like, well, what if I get it wrong? What if I get the wrong answer or li- I look in the wrong place? But I mm-hmm. think 
it must be a piece of just needing to let go of probably perfectionism is what it is and understanding yeah. that it's going to be an imperfect process. Right. And believe in a God who can handle that we're going to mm. make mistakes. And I think what you're saying, but like, I guess I have faith in a God who knows I'm going to do this all mm. imperfectly. And I trust that that's okay because as long as I am pure in heart yeah. and nobody's yes. completely pure in heart at all times, I don't mean to say, but as long as I'm honest in my pursuit of what is true, that is worthy. Mm. And I think trusting myself to let myself think what I really think and know what I really know is very important for not corrupting that inner compass. Mm when we're trying too hard to make what we think should be true, true. And we're trying to fold yeah. ourselves into that external yeah. reference. We corrupt this internal mechanism that we mm. need. And honesty is our best ability to access it. It doesn't mean that that internal compass is correct yeah. all the time because we always have blind yeah. spots, right? But it's the best place to honestly try and reference to create a a better compass internally, a better map of what's mm, around us. So true. I heard you say on a podcast, um, to get to know God, look inside yourself. And I was like, what? Mm. <laughs> like, that's amazing. <laughs> I've never heard that. Or <clears throat> I didn't feel like I had. And I was talking yeah. to a group of young women at girls camp recently, um, speaking to them and, I was telling them like, there are so many outside voices, especially now there's just so much yeah. coming from the outside. And even if you are yeah. listening to general conference 24 seven, that's still coming from the outside. Like you need time yeah. to listen to your inner voice to yourself. Yes. Yeah. But we're just not taught that very much. It's, it can feel very scary to trust yourself. It feels like all the answers are already out there and it's a matter of finding them Yeah. outside yourself. That's right. And when we talk about personal mm -hmm. revelation mm -hmm. or getting a confirmation, it's like, if you're doing that right, you're going to affirm yes. what's already out there. Yes. So then when you're like, well, wait, I don't feel like, yeah. this, right? so, so what's the matter with me? That was yes. my next, con that would be like, what is wrong with me that this right, doesn't right. feel right? So how does this idea or patriarchy, how does it harm both men and women? Well, I think that first of all, to put disproportional value on a masculine perspective is to not, first of all, not get all of the wisdom, strength, capacity, and resource in the feminine position. And I know I'm speaking categorically right now, male, masculine, female, but, but we generally in a patriarchy will devalue those qualities associated with the feminine. And so first of all, that's, not, not good because the, the breadth of human experience means that there's wisdom and goodness that's in all of those capacities, the capacity to be assertive, but also the capacity to be intuitive, the capacity to be logical, but also the capacity to be creative. You know, we need all of those qualities. And so when we talk about the body of Christ, it's like we thrive when we can embrace and make room for the variation in intelligence and in capacity. So a kind of fear-based or disproportionate valuing undermines what we know and what we can have. The other thing is that it creates 
dependency and dishonesty in men and women. So if you give people the idea of gender roles, which is often a mechanism in patriarchal societies, right? So men are sort of strong, dominant, logical, sexual, okay, and women are accommodating, love to serve everybody. So <laughs> they actually serve very much the masculine position in terms of being accommodated, but, you know, sexually receptive, but not sexual themselves, desireless, you know, emotional, intuitive, that that is basically not about describing what is, because I'm fine with describing what is. Like, you know, if you happen to be more intuitive, less logical, whatever, no, no problem to know kind of what your strengths are, but it's more prescriptive than descriptive. So, you know, I was a kid who wanted to pursue higher education. I wanted a PhD, but I thought it wasn't really appropriate for me as a Mm -hmm. female. Mm -hmm. It's not feminine. And that it could even be a threat to a man who might see me as being too too smart smart yep. or too whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so I just yes. found someone smarter. So, and so the, the way that it teaches you to be high is that if you're a woman, you have to, you've got to hide your strength. You know, you've got to hide your capacities. You've got to, there's all entire books out there for women about how to manipulate these men into thinking that they were above the woman, you know, like hide your strength, be coy, pretend this, make him feel strong. I mean, it's, it's super insulting of men and women, these books that were, you know, hot ticket item <laughs> books that sold many copies. Okay. Oh shoot. Someone so, needs to go undo all of yeah. that. <laughs> You're doing it. <laughs> so true. Yeah, exactly. So, but it's also, so it's teaching women to pretend they're weaker than they are or that they're, you know, it teaches women to manipulate, right? And to kind of hide behind a man, but it also teaches men to pretend that they're stronger than they are and that they have no anxieties and they have no self-doubt. And so it sets up a marriage of pretense. I mean, this is what these books are, like, I can't remember what the name of them were, but like The Total Woman or Fascinating Womanhood. Uh, the rules of dating was called the rules. I think this came out in the nineties. It's all about the woman pretending who she is, but the man's also pretending he's pretending to be strong, have all the answers. And you can't create an intimate marriage when you're pretending. Now, men and women are going to be different as a group collectively. There's differences and those differences are great. So you don't have to pretend you're the same either for any, by any stretch, but can you be honest and can you embrace those differences and, and utilize them and value them in a, in a collaborative partnership? So hierarchy fundamentally undermines it. And then there's all this neediness, not intimacy, like I need to be needed. That's maybe the masculine position. And the woman is needy. Well, even if you need to be needed, it's a needy position because you need so much to feel that you're on top or more important. I remember a guy I was dating saying like, I think you're so great, but I just, I just wouldn't feel like a man with you. And I think, oh my gosh, that makes me feel so bad. But what I think he was honestly saying was, I can't handle you. You kind of threaten the sense of me being the one on top. Yeah. And that was outside of his experience of what it totally. meant to be a man. Yeah. And that's not his fault. Mm-hmm. It's what he's seen. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. 
as you're talking about that, the the hiding and the trying to appear as less than, it's just like taking me back in time to junior high when I was taller than everyone, mm-hmm. faster than everyone. Yes, and I yes. was in show choir yes, and dancing yeah. with the boys and just feeling like so uncomfortable and so unfeminine. And just yes, yes. stating like, for a fact, I have to marry someone taller than me. I have to find someone tall. <laughs> when you said John's smarter than you, I'm like, tall was my thing. I had to find someone taller than me. And I did. So, <laughs> phew. But just that feeling like I can, I still feel it sometimes. Like if I'm in a group and I'm taller and bigger, it feels unfeminine to me. And like, why? It's been a big journey for right. me and I'm still working on it to allow myself to just take up my space physically as well as emotionally mentally but I think it started for me at such a young age just physically yeah right oh absolutely and it's very sad like a lot of girls come into puberty and their first message is I must be small you know I mean be small yes physically but emotionally like girls in seven and eight are like they know what they want when they go to fast food place but when they're 12 they start saying like oh I don't know like Basically, what do you yes. want me to want? Yes. So this is like finding or feeling their way into what makes yeah. them acceptable. Yeah. That's so interesting. And yeah, those those messages are internalized more. It's like, yeah, you must be small physically, but it's more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't exactly. say it outright, so it's hard to make sense of it. Explanation of how how it keeps all of us stuck and how it keeps all of us dependent yes. and living below our power. It's not good for, I think it can look like patriarchy is good for men and bad for women. It's not. exactly Right. I thought that for a long time, actually. And especially working with couples, I'm like, well, which, just to put it in extreme terms, I've sometimes thought, you know, which would I rather be, the abuser Mm. or the abused? I'm like, oh my gosh, they're both horrifying positions. (laughs) Horrible. And I understand you technically, okay, you get to own land or whatever in these systems. So I under, I'm not denying the fact that women may mm-hmm. suffer more, mm-hmm. right, overtly in a system where they can't have economic power. So I'm not in any yeah. way denying that, but they're both broken yeah. positions. What can we do to affect change or even just shed light on this topic? Well, two, two thoughts, maybe. I think you, to use our cultural language, you have to get your own testimony of your strength and capacity and the beauty of your gifts and the non-apology for them. And to not live small, even though it's more socially validated, that you step into your own. That's the kindest thing you can do for your daughters, for your sons, for your marriage, for the people around you, is that you don't apologize for your capacity and who you are. And whatever uniqueness that is, right? You're not trying to be what other people say is strong. You're stepping into your strength, your offering your gifts unapologetically and believing in a God, a mother and father in heaven who embody that and who want that for the good of humanity. Now that's a big step for some of us who didn't see it in our parents, who didn't learn about it at church. It's nonetheless true. (laughs) And when you live by what's true, you get stronger and you live more peacefully. It's like by their fruits, Mm -hmm. ye shall know. So what is this seed, the, I, this idea cultivating in me? For me, that's what made me feel more and more confident is the less that I kind of apologized, hid, pretend, 
the, the more that I stepped into my own, stopped apologizing for who I was, the happier I was, the more joyful I was, the better my marriage was. <laughs> it's like, it's all there. I have no apology. I have a clear testimony yeah. of it to say yeah. it that way. The second thing is to, so you get it in yourself, but then the more you just live it and I'm not trying to fight people on this idea. I just know what I know. <laughs> and so it's like, I don't, I'm not apologetic for saying what I see and what I really understand to be true. And I, I don't need to convince anyone. It's just what I understand to be true. And I have not just my own life, but working with couples who are in a hierarchy, who start moving out of it and st- find more freedom, more joy, better sex, more happiness yeah. in their marriage. It's like, I just, there's like evidence over and over and over again. And so we're not going to create peaceful society and peaceful marriages and peaceful faith communities until we get this worked out. The body of Christ is exactly that idea. Yeah. Right there. And yet you you can't favor one over the other. You can't say, I have no need of thee. Mm. And or, you know, I'm the head and you're the foot, so deal with it. You know, you can't, <laughs> do what I can't say. Do <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so it's the importance of understanding that and striving for it. Honestly, that's how you come to know God. That's how you come to know what's good. I. It's interesting you said, I'm not trying to fight anyone on this. It's just what I know. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes mm-hmm. I've had this sense that if I can explain it well enough. If I know it well enough, I'll be able to explain it so that people understand and agree with me. And I'm mm-hmm. through what you just said, it's like a, mm-hmm. I'm realizing if I know it well enough, I won't need people to agree with me. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I think there's value in being able to articulate things, right? Because it's a way of showing your mind to other people and then they can use that to figure out their own mind. But you're right. It's not about, I need to convince yeah. you so yeah. I'm okay. That's what I used That's to do in the I beginning. Feel. I'd yes. be like, like if yeah. someone else can understand <laughs> okay. this, and especially someone who I value their opinion and I think that they're smart and wise, yeah. and if I can get them to agree with this thing that I feel in my heart is true, yeah. then it'll be true. <laughs> right, right. It's very, 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 yeah. very easy to do yeah. that. But it's yeah. this process mm-hmm. of yeah, figuring out for yourself what do I believe is true, and then and then living in that knowledge, and then like you talked about earlier, still being open to more truth, building on that, learning right. more. I think sometimes I get, the way yes. I describe it, I get nervous about being either a bulldozer or being bulldozed. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Yes. Right. Exactly. And that's back to the yeah. hierarchical relationship because you can go, I know there was, I'm sure there was many ward parties where people were like, no, I'm not <laughs> <laughs> because I would be like annoyed about something and I'd be taking somebody down over refreshments. And, oh my gosh. Oh my, oh my gosh. And so I would go from like this kind of feeling of one down and then yes. I'd be trying to like kind of win at the idea. I this and, so much. And I'm, yeah. <laughs> And it took me a few years to just stop doing that and come to peace within yeah. myself. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> the ward parties. Just don't don't go to that table. <laughs> yes, <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. Um, one last question around this topic. Do you have any opinions or thoughts about like, where is our mother in heaven? And why don't we talk about her? I do. I have some thoughts about it. I don't know if it's true or not. Um, but I think what I think about is that what we understand about God is really limited 
by what we ourselves understand about what is true. So that is to say, we are mostly talking about our projection onto God, much more than we're talking about who God really is. If you look at the Old Testament, the New Testament, you see the society and where it was. And that that is the best indicator of what their notions of God would be. I think it was a more, I mean, again, I'm not an anthropologist, but I think societies in the Old Testament time were much harsher, which were much, you know, very hierarchical. And so the God of the Old Testament is similar. Okay. I think that's not that there's no divinity in those ideas, but there's a lot of humanity in those ideas. Society's notion of God evolved with the New Testament. So you have a more compassionate God, a God who's more merciful cares about love and cares about and I know those ideas were in the Old Testament too but like it became a more dominant view so we think of God as a Caucasian male you know I mean you just have to think okay how much is that about God and how much is that about who's had most access to defining God when I talk to clients there is a and they sometimes will I'll have them do dialogues with God you know that, that they'll show me the God in their mind and it's their parent, right? And so, like, sometimes the God, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I, you shouldn't be worshiping this God. Like, he's worse than my worst client. Like, are you kidding me? He's punitive and cruel. And and I sound really flippant when I'm saying it like that. But, you know, it's kind of striking. Sometimes the God in their mind is a step or two ahead of their parent. So it's evolved from their parent. But it's often very hard to not project onto God what you know about a parent, So I'm just saying all that because I think we come to know God more as we evolve ourselves. We're more able to see and understand what is godly. And we can be maybe a step or two conceptually. We can conceptually understand a step or two ahead of where we are. But I don't think we can understand a lot more than that. Meaning we have to evolve ourselves into a deeper understanding of what a loving God really means. But we get that more as we learn to love. So I think we use faith to kind of be, okay, I I see God a step or two ahead of where I am. I'm going to reach towards that. And as you evolve, then you can see and understand God a step or two ahead of where you are in that moment. It's that line upon line idea. But in a collective conversation, you're going to hear a real variation in what people mean when they say God. And... We talk about worshiping a false god, but in Sunday school once, I was like, you know, come on, let's be honest. We're all worshiping a false god, (laughs) aren't we? But people are like, what? Like we all have our individual experience, right? And it's limited and we need to stay humble about that because God is so much more than our current understanding of God. And I think that includes our notion of masculine and feminine and a a partnered godhood, uh, godhead. And we just... We can, we can get there. Our theology provides for it, but we aren't there yet. But you already see it in the church. There's more mention of mother and father in heaven. There's much more mention. And when I was younger, I was like, well, that would be so easy. Why don't we do that? But we are doing it now. Yeah, a little bit. We're moving. We're taking those steps. And, and that's encouraging. I was having a conversation with a friend recently, and I was talking about how sometimes I can feel how it's just like, I have an idea and I feel like I can, I bump into 
the limits of my mortal experience. Like, mm. and that's just what you were saying. Yes. Like we can only understand so much, um, but we have the opportunity to grow right. and then understand a little bit more and a little bit more. Right. So our task right. is to keep taking those steps. Right. Exactly. Keep evolving, keep pushing your own yeah. development because your wisdom about what is good and who God yeah. is grows. And so as we do that, especially as women, as we do that, we should get to know more about our mother in heaven, right? I absolutely think that's how it goes. That as we become stronger, she will be more revealed to our hearts and she will become real within our collective conversation. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. I'm excited about that. I can, I can feel it happening Mm -hmm. little by little, but Mm -hmm. I'm anxious. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Okay. That was such a wonderful, seriously refreshing conversation. Like just to talk about all of that and not feel judged, I guess, is where I feel a lot. Yeah. I try to have those conversations and I'm scared. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Which in and of itself is really important because if there's conversations that can't be had, it means fear is running the interaction, not the pursuit of truth and understanding. And I think I was fortunate to be born into a family where nobody was too afraid of ideas. And so I think that allowed for my mind to allow some of those conversations, even within myself, I think, but it's when we can't have them, we are limiting our ability to discern what's true. So I think as a group, we have to tolerate more of the questions without being so afraid. If we really have faith, we'll handle the questions better. I love that. Mm-hmm. If we really have faith, we'll be able to handle the questions. Not that yeah. if we really have faith, we won't ask questions. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. To wrap up, I just have a few like rapid fire mm-hmm. questions. Um, just a little quick segment mm-hmm. to end to get to know a little bit more about you. So you already mm-hmm. shared something most people don't know about you. Last time you were on, do you have something else most people don't know about you? <laughs> Oh, let's see. So I think what I talked about last time was that I had earned money as an adolescent by selling gingerbread houses to get contact yes. lenses and get rid of my plus eight Coke <laughs> bottle glasses. Okay. Um, but I guess the, the prequel of that story is that when I was born, I had strabismus, which is I had crossed eyes and was legally blind, wow. actually. So I had surgery when I was three years old to um, correct for the strabismus, but continue to have, you know, serious eye challenges. Um, So I was wearing thick glasses all through my childhood and um, um, still do not have binocular vision. So I, I've always wanted to be a good tennis player. I will never be that in this life. In this life. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I mean, my depth perception is challenged. And so even my husband throwing me the car keys can be a dangerous event. No, there won't be volleyball retreats anytime soon. (laughs) That's exactly right. Yoga, yes. Okay. Walking, no problem. Oh, I did long gosh. distance running for years. That's, that's why, but never anything that was, you know, yes. team sports. Oh man, man. Well, uh, did you, were you able ever to get, 
were you ever able to get like LASIK or any, or do you still wear contacts? And No, they wouldn't. I have contact lenses, but they didn't want to touch my eyes with LASIK because they're just too yeah. impaired. <laughs> Don't mess with that. So oh. anyway, I'm grateful to be able to see at all. And I'm grateful for the fact of contact lenses because I said to John, I don't think you would have married me. If you could. It's like, that's not true. I'm like, no, no you need to see me in glasses before you take that position. <laughs> Oh man, that's hilarious. Well, I'm glad that they were able to make it better and that you're not legally blind yeah. anymore. Yeah. My husband got LASIK a couple months ago and it's like a whole new world for him. He's like, I wake oh, up and I can great. just see it's a miracle. I'm like, oh, I just, yeah. It amazing is. what they can do. Amazing. Okay. Yeah. You feel frustrated, mm-hmm. embarrassed, or otherwise dysregulated. What's your go-to for getting yourself back to a place of calm or homeostasis? Okay. So it depends a little bit if I kind of know in my gut that I'm mm. a part of the problem <laughs> or the cause of the problem, then, you know, at least when I'm doing things in a way I respect, you know, I'm self-confronting or I'm trying to like get out of my, I'm a victim yeah. of something to know I, what is my role yeah. in this problem? Um, and while that never feels good, it does calm me down, I think, because it gives me the sense of what am I in fact responsible for and what do I have control over? So it's perhaps cold comfort, but it is a kind of, okay, I can see my part in the problem. I think if it's about kind of anxiety about the future or, you know, embarrassment about something in the past or something like that, where it's, it's like, I'm not living in the present and I'm trying to control things that I don't have control over past or future. Uh, then it's to, you know, an exercise I do often is, well, one of two things. One is like, imagine this is the last time I ever get to do this. And that's just a way of focusing myself like right in the moment. The last time I get to be on a podcast, right? The last time to have a meaningful conversation about life. The last time to be walking around my neighborhood. The last time to be hugging my daughter. The last time to even exercise where like it makes me exercise with more energy to say like, because there is no guarantee. Like a lot of times we live in this idea, this is going on forever and ever and ever. And it diffuses the, the, it keeps you from embracing your life right now. And so for me, it's like, not only does it kind of bring my focus, but it also allows me to really cherish yeah. my life right now. It's so precious and it's so easy to let it go by, by being somewhere else in your head. So I think I said two things. So I do that. And then, and then sometimes it's just like, uh, it's the same thing. It's just yeah. being present, like feeling my feet under my, you know, feeling the floor under my feet, you know, just like really taking it in. Um, I love that. So, yeah. It's, it's so important and I need to use it more mm-hmm. right now while I'm like mm-hmm. loading my kids in and out of the car. That's what it seems like. Yes. <laughs> yes. I know I will miss it. I know so I will true. miss it. But it's so, it's so hard. hard to know it in the moment. You're like, I will not miss them waking up at 2 a.m. I promise you I will not miss them. Oh, true. Um, but yes, I love right. that. Just bring yourself. But sometimes yourself. you can imagine my future self will yeah. desperately miss it. Like my future self will remember this. So can I tr- take it in right now? Yeah. It's it's easy to not do, but yeah. it's so valuable yeah, to that. do. Um, so give me a snapshot of like an ordinary moment in your life that brings you a lot of joy. 
I'm just trying to think of something that's worth kind of explaining yeah. because I have these so many moments that feel joyful yeah. to me and I feel so yeah. grateful for in the way that I was just talking about, which is, you know, my husband is eight years older than me. I'm in my early fifties. He's 61. You know, I, I, there, for me, I have this sense of there's no guarantees. I mean, hopefully he will be with me for another 30 years, but I, I think there's this kind of sense that I have a lot of just cherishing and being grateful for his yeah. presence in a pretty, I don't know why, but I think I feel it so much lately. Like I just am so grateful yeah. that he's there lying next to me asleep, whatever it is, but he's just there. It's so makes my life. It gives my life so much happiness and joy to have his friendship. So that's like not an extraordinary moment, but it, it is definitely an ordinary thing, but one that, you know, is like ridiculously precious. I love so that. I love that. Mm. Okay. Last question. You're sitting down to a wonderful meal. Who is with you and what's on the plate? I'm with my family, whether that's my immediate family or extended family. And what's on the plate? Anything that I haven't cooked? <laughs> I've gotten that answer a couple times and I totally agree. <laughs> Always tastes better if someone else cooks. Exactly. Yeah, 100%. And I usually am not the one cooking, to be fair. So I just don't like it at all. That's another thing people don't know about me. I have no, no. Um, what's on the plate? I mean, I'm not a big carnivore. I do eat meat sometimes, but just some like creative, amazing dish that has lots of vegetables in it and um, is well-made, <laughs> anything like that. So I like going out to eat with my husband or family, extended family, and just having new fun things to try. So I'm kind of open to anything, but except for yeah. big slabs of meat, probably <laughs> not my favorite. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jennifer. I really appreciate it. This has been such a, a fun and enlightening conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Such a pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Finlayson Fife and the work that she does, check out the links in the show notes below to find her website, online courses she offers, information on upcoming events, and her free Facebook group.